Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. This is part three in the story of how feature films in Canada got their start. As mentioned in part one, I will be using as a reference a book called Canada's Hollywood by Ted Magder. In this episode, we talk about the tax shelter years, a notorious but short period in Canadian film history that generated contempt for our films that still lingers today. Then we talk about how the early days of pay TV affected the CFTC, so much so that it had to change its name to Telefilm Canada. Chapter 9. There's a quote at the top of the chapter that says, Artists cannot survive on art alone. Schlock, to use an inelegant word, is necessary as a solid base for creativity. It provides employment for talents which would otherwise not be able to survive nor be available for projects of a higher artistic value. Unquote. And that was John Roberts. He was the Secretary of State in 1978. Uh, during this period, uh, the Secretary of State had prepared a document that called for a 10% tax on the gross receipts of distributors. The money raised, about $6 million in 1977, would have gone directly to the CFDC, thereby doubling its annual funds and eliminating the need for the government subsidy. In other words, the gross receipts of the major American distributors would have become the principal financial source for the Canadian government's support to private domestic features. This was an aggressive and creative proposal, but of course, in November 1977, it was scuttled by the Liberal government of the time. From a commercial standpoint, back in the day, the Canadian feature film industry had embarked on a new and apparently healthy phase. From 78 to the fall of 1980, Canadian feature filmmaking entered what has been described as a boom period. Although accurate figures are difficult to come by, why I wonder, at the height of the boom in 1979, approximately 66 feature films with a total budget of $172 million were produced. This new phase was not where levies and quotas were used to alter the, the industry's status quo, nor one where the main concern was the production of self-conscious uh, Canadian films. Rather, it was the era of tax-sheltered production, designed for the distribution through the American major. This increase in the production and budgets was the result of three main factors. The main one was the incentive provided by the Capital Cost Allowance Tax, in the development of a public offer by which Canadian producers raise capital money by offering small-scale investors a share in the production. And of course, it was a tax write-off. Second, Canadian producers had learned to make greater use of their co-production treaties with France, Italy, Germany, and Israel. Third was the fact that the CFDC itself supported big-budget international films. It was its top priority. So as we've seen before, the major interests within the industry had always considered Canadian feature films to be an export commodity. Now the code word for success was international appeal. 
Of course, this meant appealing to the United States. And this tax shelter boom was the culmination of uh, this logic of trying to sell a film as an export commodity. Canada's film industry had finally succumbed to that old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. So movies like uh, Meatballs in 79, Murder by the Cree against 79, and The Changeling 1980 were some of the more notable and successful films from Hollywood North. It's true that private feature filmmaking in capitalist countries is, of course, a commercial activity. It's no less true that the tax-shelter commercial boom in Canadian films produce far more schlock, to use Robert's phrase, than art. Uh, the author Magder here says that the notion that schlock was to provide a foundation for art, as Robert previously put it, was itself rather questionable, because many of the Canadian directors who had made a start at their craft in the early 70s found themselves out of work during the boom, or worse, working on projects that were not suited for them. The production of film as art was both limited and marginalized during this period, as efforts were geared almost entirely towards success in the mainstream international marketplace. Many of the Canadian directors who were more interested in creating a, a real Canadian cinema found themselves out of work during the boom. On the other hand, many of Canada's film producers made a healthy living for themselves, particularly those who learned the art of structuring deals that paid a hefty producer's fee, regardless of a given film's commercial success. Ultimately, the tax shelter boom did not lead to the establishment of stable production houses that could produce films without tax shelter financing. This had been a long-standing goal of the government's feature film policy, and it was the basis upon which the schlock begets art assumption was supposed to work, but it didn't. So when the boom ended in the 80s, the Canadian film industry was once again in the throes of a crisis, a victim of overproduction, a new phenomenon in Canadian film production, to be sure. There was a loss of investor confidence and uncertainty over the future. Ironically, 1977, the year before the start of the tax shelter boom, was a watershed year for Canada's movie future from a fiscal standpoint. There was a movie called The Outrageous that was uh, popular. It was an Alan King film version of W.O. Mitchell's Who Has Seen the Wind? And a movie called Why Should the Teacher? There's a few classics of the Canadian films right there. And these movies suggested that the commercial and cultural considerations were compatible because these films were critical as well as financial success stories. And the 70s was a pretty good year also for some Quebec films. There was an NFP production called the J.A. Martin Photographer that swept the Canadian Film Awards and garnered praise at Cannes Film Festival and others. Of course, the author says here, yet rather than being a sign of things to come, these films were a sign of things that were to pass. With few exceptions, the tax shelter boom would channel resources into high-budget American-oriented pictures. 1977 was indeed a vintage year, and vintages, as they say, are rare. Now these productions were favored by the CFDC because it favored English-language films, not so much French-language films. The corporation invested like half a million 
dollars in the production of 15 French language films, whose total budget was 1.3 million. 11 of those were documentaries. A lot of those were also co-productions. They offered the easy way to qualify for the 100% capital cost allowance tax break to the extent that Canada now had become a Bahamas-style tax haven. So back to the uh, Secretary of State, John Roberts. Uh, He had the intention to complete the task of developing a comprehensive film policy that was begun by his predecessors. The previous film policy placed more emphasis on limiting the amount of public sector filmmaking rather than breaking up the monopoly structure within the private sector. The proposed policy had failed to deal with the oldest and most important problem in in Canada, film distribution and the near-monopoly position of the Hollywood majors. So we keep bumping up against this again and again and again. The Canadian government, the officials, they're bright enough to know that there's, there's a problem here. They know about the Hollywood domination. This is not a secret. It's not unknown. They know about it, but ignore it and don't do anything about it. And every time there's a, some uh, legislation that might privilege Canadian interests over American, the Americans complain. If the Canadian state does something that puts the American at a disadvantage financially, Americans will start their own protectionist measures against Canada, and Canada cannot risk that, according to politicians anyway. But Roberts eventually created his proposal for a film policy in November 1977. His document dealt almost exclusively with the question of distribution and the privileged position of the American majors, who were then receiving $60 million a year in revenues from films in Canada. Roberts proposed a 10% tax on the gross rental receipts of the American distributors with a rebate equivalent to the total amount they returned to Canadian producers from Canadian films distributors. The revenue generated, estimated at $5.7 million for 1977, would have gone directly to the CFTC. So even though this policy was limited and not that comprehensive, it was an attempt to address the issue of distribution. Now, of course, Canada and the Canadian government basically start to shake in their boots because they know the the foreign distributors, Americans, will rise up violently against this fiscal measure and will use their influence in Washington. We do not know what effect the policy might have had because it never received cabinet approval. What a surprise. It was opposed mostly by the Department of Finance. They vetoed any kind of introduction of new fiscal measures, such as a 10% solution. Here Magda says, quote, The conflict between the Department of Finance and the Secretary of State reminds us again of the unequal structure of representation within the state. And of course, the Department of Finance had received representation from industry groups opposed to the proposal. Of course, the American majors were the most important opposition, unquote. And back in the day, there were a lot of film organizations in Canada at that time. Industry groups included something called the CMPDA, which included uh, representatives from the subsidiaries of the seven major American distributors in Canada, plus a couple of new ones. And there was a a Quebec equivalent also. And they weren't too happy with this new potential 10% tax on revenue. The author makes the point here that the scenario of an export-oriented feature film industry was widely supported by Canadians working inside the industry. 
And then, like I said, all these organizations in their criticism of the 10% tax were not above invoking the threat of uh, U.S. retaliation to get their way. Strangely, this 10% tax proposal received very little support from the Canadians in the industry who might have been expected to be sympathetic. Why? Nobody knows. So this 10% tax did not get the support it should have. In the spring of 78, the current chair of the CFDC was to be replaced by two people who basically continued the idea of film as an export product. The CFDC then restructured its investment program. Instead of providing loans, the CFDC shifted its focus to the provision of interim or bridge financing. These loans function as seed money, extended to producers whose projects would later be financed through private investments, utilizing the provisions of the Capital Cost Allowance Stack. Remember, the Capital Cost Allowance let people get tax deductions for investing in movies. The deduction was 100%, and it had been in effect since 1975. This was the beginning of what came to be called the tax shelter boom. So, increasingly, feature films were being financed through public offers in which smaller shares are offered to a much larger number of investors. This allowed everybody to invest in films. And this public offer of film investments quickly became one of the most popular forms of investment, a tax deferral used by Canadians in the top income bracket. Of course, a number of investment firms and brokerage houses handled the transactions and advised clients on the suitability of particular projects. Just a comment about this last phrase. What do investment firms know about movies? What are they doing? Reading film scripts and deciding which film is best to invest? How do they know what makes a good film or a profitable film? They're financial people, not movie people. So what type of films are going to be made when accountants decide which ones get the money? So obviously the return on the dollar was the prime directive. There was a conflict because, of course, for this to work, the projects that you're investing in have to be Canadian. So there was, of course, then a need for another government office called the Canadian Film and Video Certification Office. And they were the ones who had created a point system to establish whether a Canadian project was eligible for the capital cost allowance. In 1978, there were 37 certified feature films. The production budget total was $48 million. In 1979, at the apex of the boom, there were 66 feature films with budgets totaling $171 million. In 1980, the last year of the boom, there were 53 feature films with budgets totaling $147 million. In the period 79 to 80, the corporation invested $10 million in 34 films with budgets totaling $107 million. The author says here that gross production figures indicated a higher level of activity but they told us little about the nature of the films produced, their commercial success, and their impact upon the structure of the industry itself. So from all this stuff, it was obvious that the trend was towards production of big-budget English-language films geared for international distribution. It was the usual stuff we saw before. Canada had to produce films for export because the market and the major external 
market was the United States. Canada had to produce films for export because the major external market was the United States. The Association of Quebec Filmmakers were not happy with the new leadership of the CFDC. They weren't happy about the use of public funds towards making Canadian films that basically looked like American copies. And the same Canadian Filmmaker Association for English Canada shared the same concern, and they wanted the directors of the CFDC to be fired. And here they said something which I think needs to be underlined, that the films made currently, by the time of course, are not even good films in any nationality. We seem, they said, not to have learned that Americans can make American films better than we can. <laughs> Just repeat that. We seem not to have learned that Americans can make American films better than we can. In the aftermath of the tax shelter boom, Magda says that many more industry representatives would come to share this very attitude of skepticism and derision. But now, that was rare. Of course, again, just to point out the conflict, there was another trade association in Quebec, not for directors, but for producers of films, and they were happy with the direction of the CFDC. There was this producer in Quebec called uh, Denis Héroux, who he was a big, was big on Canadian-French co-productions. He made a movie directed by Louis Mal, a famous French director called Athletic City. And another one uh, you might remember called Quest for Fire. Both films uh, used the uh, French directors uh, from France, not Quebec directors. Atlantic City was shot in English, while Quest for Fire used some kind of prehistoric language. So I guess it didn't matter there. But both films were distributed by American majors. In contrast to this uh, producer, there was a Quebec filmmaker called Claude Jutrois, you might remember him, famous at that time who couldn't find work because of these types of uh, film productions dominated. So he moved from Quebec to Toronto to direct a few television dramas. He actually made a film of a Margaret Atwood novel, novel called Surfacing. And the author Magder here says that this film, uh, Surfacing, was typical of films made during this time. 20th Century Fox, the producers, hired an American screenwriter to adapt Atwood's novel and cast American actors in leading roles. And Claude Jutras said that he did not like this recasting. Later on saying that, uh, quote, I don't recognize the film I thought I had made, unquote. A critic at the time said that uh, what actually emerged from this was that when this book surfacing, a book that was anti-American, apparently, when it was made into a film, something astonishing happened a film in which anything that might offend Americans was carefully removed. I mean, was it really that astonishing when you make movies exclusively for the U.S. market? I mean, you wouldn't want to make something that would offend that market. Magda says uh, the Canadian cinema at that time was overcome by a wave of mediocrity. Most Canadians who remembered the tax shelter boom will recall the publicity and hype that characterized those years. Most would also be hard-pressed to recall even a few of the films produced. Very few are worth remembering, even though they boasted big budgets and foreign stars. All these films qualified as Canadian under the provision of the point system. And many of the projects made liberal use of the term executive producer, ensuring that an American 
was never far behind the Canadian producer necessary for qualification under the terms of the uh, capital cost allowance. Many films were written by Canadians, and rumor has it that in a number of cases, American screenwriters were busy scribbling behind the scenes. But strangely, Canadians got the blame for the bad movies. Well, maybe not so surprisingly. Film critics said about the whole episode, quote, What could have better filled the Canadian need for self-denigration than the flowering of a schlock movie industry? The insults Canada had endured from Hollywood began to look like petty mischief compared with the abuse Canada had been getting from its own movie makers, unquote. Given that these films were intended for international, meaning American markets, there was a few critics that were okay with it, a very few. The main comment was from Arthur Knight, an American film critic who said that the Canadian industry was on a suicide course. The new style of Canadian cinema seemed to demand a new style of awards. So the Canadian Association of Motion Picture Producers, with the acronym uh, CAMP, CAMP, which is uh, kind of a re revealing if you think about it, threatened to boycott the Canadian Film Awards unless they were given a bigger say in the proceedings. So they changed the criterion. And then the CFDC, supporting the producer's position, gave them a grant. So the, the Academy of Canadian Cinema was created. First awards were held in 1980, and that's where it all began. The big winners were, of course, the more commercially successful tax shelter films. The Changeling, a horror film with George C. Scott, and another one called Murder by the Cree, won five awards, while Meatballs took two awards, including Best Original Screenplay. Something to be proud of. And Meatballs was actually the most commercially successful film during the tax boom years. The film only cost $1.6 It had Bill Murray in it. Uh, interesting note here, Paramount Pictures bought the U.S. distribution rights for $3.3 million, and they paid $300,000 more for the film itself. In 1979 alone, the film grossed $40 million, and the director for that movie was Ivan Reitman. And that was his last Canadian movie. Well, I guess you may, may or may not know he was a big-time Hollywood producer, or he became a big-time Hollywood producer best known for making Ghostbusters. But the production boom was doing very little to establish a stable, independent Canadian distribution sector. Distributors found themselves picking up the scraps. This came to a head in 1979, when Universal Studios offered $2.5 million and a percentage of box office revenues for the world distribution rights for a movie called Running. So obviously the producers were happy with that, but the independent Canadian distributors were furious because they couldn't outbid the Hollywood majors. So once this movie deal came up, the Secretary of State said again that Canadian distribution was again the top policy priority. And he was considering a proposal to restrict uh, foreign distribution to films that Canadians had produced themselves. This was the position advanced by Canadian distributors themselves. But in a speech three months later, the Secretary of State made no mention of the exhibition and distribution problem. So basically it was brought up again, and it was forgotten again. Just like a jack-in-the-box, it just keeps popping up 
but nothing ever happened. Anyway, it was getting pretty obvious after all this that some people had doubts about this policy of promoting Hollywood-type films. And the author says that, in fact, the very existence of the film incentive has in some ways had a perverse effect on Canadian film culture. It might therefore be argued that one result of the expanded investments fostered by the tax shelter had been a reduction in truly Canadian films. The author points to another study, of course, we love studies here, another study from the Ontario government, and it said that the higher budgets did not necessarily translate directly into higher on-screen production values. Much of the money invested was being eaten up by brokerage commissions, lawyer and account fees, non-productive fees, executive producer fees, and the exorbitant salaries paid to foreign movie stars. Another study noted that the film boom was not only encouraging higher budgets, but also the production of too many films. The total output of 1979 exceeded 50% of Hollywood's output during the same period. This was the heyday of Canada's Hollywood. Too many expensive films, too many mediocre films, too few outlets for successful distribution and exhibition, and all this was, of course, a recipe for a financial disaster. Again, another report said that as of 1981, close to 40% of the films produced in 79 had not received distribution, while 81, less than 10%, had any measurable commercial success. And I forgot to mention uh, this other study again by the Ontario Economic Council, and it said, quote, that the relatively small number of high-income Canadian taxpayers are allowed to allocate public revenues to movies as they see fit, unquote. So all these high-income, I guess you could say, rich people were deciding which movies were going to be made. And that was interesting. But eventually this system of tax shelter incentives didn't work. Private investors soon discovered that the short-term benefits of the capital cost allowance did not offset the losses incurred from box office duds. They had begun to realize that you don't spend a dollar to save 60 cents. The boom was over. The CFTC came to reconsider its investment priorities. So now they changed the criteria again and set up new guidelines. At the end of March 1980, from this point on, the CFTC would only invest in projects where all the producer functions were carried out by Canadians, except in co-production. These new guidelines basically signaled the demise of the heads of the CFTC. Someone called Michael McCabe was the executive director, and Michel Venat was the chairperson. McCabe was a longtime friend of the previous chairman. He had also spent time writing the speeches for finance minister Jean Chrétien. Earlier, McCabe had worked as an executive assistant to Mitchell Sharp, another politician, at the same time as the other chairman, Venat, was Sharp's special assistant. And this Michel Venat himself was a corporate lawyer from Montreal with strong connections with the Liberal Party. And it was later revealed that many of the CFDC's film deals were handled by the firm with which he was associated. From this, it shows that uh, what it takes to get ahead in government, having connections. Plus, both these people knew nothing about movies. I mean, they were not industry veterans. They never made a movie. They were just politicians who had connections. 
So eventually they left, thank God, and they were replaced by Andre Lemmy, who had been a government commissioner. But for all this nonsense with the tax shelter, it should be recognized that the Canadian industry itself, as a whole, would not be behind those types of interventionist measures, because the American-inspired tax shelter films meant steady employment for an increasing number of film workers. So they had their own personal interests in maintaining this dominance of Hollywood because they benefited from it. The author says here, quote, Weaned on a diet of Hollywood films and television from day one, most Canadians viewed domestic productions with a mixture of prejudice and suspicion. Unquote. To most observers, the experiment with tax shelters was at best comical, at worst, a failure. The author here gives a bit of a spin on, on the whole thing and says that it wasn't too bad, as bad as we might think, because it did help to develop a pool of uh, Canadian film technicians, which I kind of question because, well, yeah, if you're working, you're getting experience, but if you're working on crappy movies, these stack-sheltered movies, then your skills are not going to get to be very good, are they? Because you're working on crap. So if, you, like, if you're working on stuff that's just not that great, Okay, you get experience, but how good can you be if you keep working on one crappy movie after another? I mean, you're not really pushing your technical skills to the limit, are you? But well, that's my opinion. Anyway, the whole fiasco also helped to establish the careers of a few Canadian producers, like uh, Robert Lantos, you might know, uh, who, I guess, in one way or another, was actually committed to the Canadian film industry. And finally, it did lead many people to believe that the government had to deal with the question of distribution, yeah, even if it might annoy the neighbors to the south. Chapter 10 By the 1980s, pay television had become a significant source for investments and revenues, and made some old policy options such as theatrical exhibition quotas seem obsolete, Probably because of this, in August 1980, the government decided to establish a Federal Cultural Policy Review Committee. And that was the first uh, full-scale government-sponsored review of cultural policy since the Massey Report in 1951. In policy terms, at least, 1980-84 was a very busy period. Policy decisions were made with respect to the capital cost allowance, the introduction of pay TV, the operation of the CBC and NFB, the funding priorities of the CFTC, and the exhibition and distribution system. In the early 80s, there was a collapse of investor confidence because of the box office failures of many of the tax shelter films. Those who had used the tax shelter boom as a way of moving Canada's film policy or film industry closer to Hollywood, those fly-by-night producers, with little or no long-term experience in the film industry, bid a hasty retreat, while the more successful producers bravely depicted the downturn as a necessary and useful consequence of a market adjustment. And those producers continued to do their thing, people like uh, Garth Rinsky and Robert Lantos and others. One was uh, Hal Greenberg. He had a company called Astral Films, he made the movie Porky's. Remember, remember that one? It had a budget of $6 million. It was, of course, very successful. Became a box office smash. It had a distribution contract with 20th Century Fox. And the film grossed $11 million in Canada and $152 
million worldwide, more than doubling the box office take of Meatballs. I guess something to be proud of there. But something happened, and uh, kind of a second different kind of trend in production happened in those days. Smaller budget films taking Canada and Canadians as their thematic source made a comeback. There was an increase in these films in the early 1980s. It's like the filmmakers had uh, rediscovered the formulas that had led to the critical success of films such as uh, Monoc Antoine and uh, Why Should the Teacher. The return to indigenous themes, to films that worked against the homogeneity of Hollywood, was confirmed by other films, like uh, a film like called The Wars and, of course, The Grey Fox. And these films were designed to find international audience based on their use of national particularities, their rootness in a specific time and place, obviously meaning Canada. And they had the low budgets, and they were, I guess you could say, specialty films with, uh, quote, limited audience appeal, unquote, as some people would say. But they did turn a profit through distribution in international circuit of art house cinemas and sales through, the, through Europe. And these films were not ignored by American majors. The Grey Fox, uh, for example, was distributed in the U.S. by United Artists. In the summer of 1980, the Canadian government circulated a 94-page discussion paper among film industry reps with the intention of tightening the definition of a Canadian film. It's clear that the government wanted to stop the private industry from using the capital cost allowance, the CCA, to fund the Canadian film copies of Hollywood uh, films being made here. The boom years were well and truly over. Film production in Canada was in a serious slump. The CFDC annual increase of 82-83 said the industry had been unable to develop a solid financial base. And there's this thing called, uh, back in the day, called pay TV, which some people might remember. Kind of like cable TV, except that you have to, to pay for what you want to see like movies, sports, and whatever. That was back, kind of back in the 80s, that was like a new thing. Of course, this is before streaming. So there was a discussion about pay TV in Canada. What should we do? How should we manage this? And I'm not going to bore you with all the details because you can probably predict what's going to happen. <laughs> what happened was that as someone remarked, quote, it appears that pay TV in Canada will continue the tradition of broadcasting as a conduit for American entertainment programming, unquote. So we'll just skipped over this uh, because it's too predictable. So now, uh, as if there wasn't enough uh, commissions and reviews and policies and lobbyists, there was another bunch of producers, or actually a producer association in Canada at that time, and they all got together and established a council. This was called the Producers' Council. And they said that Canadian producers had finally acknowledged the sorry state of Canadian distribution and this had to be addressed if the industry was to fully recover from its downturn. So they finally realized that a strong Canadian distribution sector would be a good thing. How about that? But they put up a list of policy proposals, of course, and these policies would have been more, of course, in their favor. They did this to influence the government, who, was, who at that time was working on their own film policies. Again, lots of policies. So I just mentioned this uh, uh, to highlight the endless bureaucracy and talk involved and how everyone had their own ideas about movie production in Canada. Now, going back to the Cultural Policy Review Committee, 
now known as the Applebaum Hebert report. Uh, this it was re released a report in November '82. I'm not gonna. Not, don't worry. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this because it was predictable. It was a, another predictable report from the government. It just kept saying pretty much the same thing that it had said before. It endorsed the private sector as a proper vehicle for the growth of Canadian film. It said that culture had now become first and foremost a business and had to be treated like such. After this report, of course, there was another one. And uh, there was the Department of Communication that had been conducting its own film policy review. And it came up with another document called Towards a New National Broadcasting Policy. The report did not recommend or condone new protectionist measures. The most important mechanism for the preservation of Canada's cultural integrity would continue to be the Canadian content provisions as administered by the CRTC. The most important mechanism for the preservation of Canada's cultural integrity would continue to be the Canadian content provisions as administered by the CRTC. Despite this, the federal government's uh, strategy was to increase the attractiveness and availability of Canadian TV programming, which reflects Canadian cultural values. And to help with this was a new fund to subsidize the cost of television production. This fund would dispense about $35 million in 1983 and increase yearly until it reached $60 million in 88. The broadcast fund was to be administered by the CFDC, soon to be renamed Telefilm Canada. And that's where that comes from. The author says, in no uncertain terms, the broadcast fund made Telefilm Canada a major player in the production industry. Obviously, it also meant that it was an enormous incentive for Canadian feature film producers to shift their activities to the production of television programming. This was the early days of TV, when TV was becoming much more of a player with movies, and movies made for TV were a big thing back then. So it's a different world than the one we live in, but it foreshadows what's, uh, what was going to happen with streaming. But that's a subject for another podcast. The author says, uh, in the very real sense, the Canadian government had solved the problems of distribution and exhibition by gearing production activities to the regulated market of Canadian television. So you can never escape Hollywood. All these TV productions that were made by Canadian producers ended up imitating American TV shows. So instead of having Canadian movies looking like American ones, now we had Canadian TV looking like American TV. So there was a branch plant TV industry, like the branch plant film industry we already had. So the CFDC changed its name to Telefilm Canada in February 1984. And the name change, of course, reflected the new emphasis on TV production. The broadcast fund helped to free the cost of producing the type of programming most values by policymakers and individuals concerned with the status of Canadian culture. At the same time, the broadcast fund did little to irritate the American majors or the uh, U.S. television industry, always important in Canada. So even though the broadcast fund increased the production of Canadian drama, it moved producers away from uh, theatrical ventures. And it also encouraged a modified branch plant television industry in Canada. So the more things change, the more they remain the same. And that's the end of the podcast. 
If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com. NFPCAN at protonmail.com. Bye for now. <laughs>